The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen, bring one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he will not listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he will not listen even to the church, then he is to be to you a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am among you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Matthew to record these words of Jesus. We believe they had power in Matthew's day, but they have power today as well if we will hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word to us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Will we deal with conflict in the church as Jesus has commanded? Will we deal with conflict in the church as Jesus commanded. Now, fear not, there's not some brewing conflict here at Christ Church that I'm trying to speak to. In fact, having been here now a year, I've seen a really healthy church here at Christ Church. Um, we, we have been here a year. It was ironically Canada Day, July 1st, last year, that we moved down here. It was the irony of moving to the United States of America on Canada Day. And to add to the irony, there I am yesterday, or yeah, yesterday on Canada Day, outside my house on Canada Day, making sure that the American flag was in position on my front lawn, getting ready for July 4th. So uh, the irony continues, just trying to learn what it means to live in America. Uh, Great example, we're learning as we just sung that last hymn. I'll tell you, this weekend is the first time I knew that there were other lyrics to that song other than God Save the Queen. Um, And I'm looking over at my wife and daughter here who were having a moment there as well, you know, obviously recognizing that. Um, It's a good thing uh, it's not a solo. If it had started up and I'd started out, I probably would have come out with the wrong words and it would have created an international crisis here at Christ Church Plano. But seriously, having been here a year, though, I've seen a very healthy congregation and healthy Christians. And I think the reason for that is, I can tell you, my, my take on this first year is the reason I think we're a relatively healthy church community, especially if you're a newcomer this morning. I'm telling you, as a newcomer myself, this is a healthy place. And it's because we take God's word seriously here. Again and again, I meet people here who really take God's word seriously. Now, let's be careful, though. Because there's many, many churches and many Christians who take God's word seriously 
But when it comes to conflict resolution, the Bible goes out the window for them. It happens again and again. And here we see Jesus giving us a clear instruction on what reconciliation looks like. There was a young man in our parish who got into a war with the rector's wife. Not a wise thing to do. There was a disagreement over music in Vacation Bible School. Uh, This man, this young man started bad-mouthing the rector's wife. It turned into gossip, it got divisive, it got ugly. Now, how did this story resolve itself? Well, you'll just have to wait to the end of the sermon to find out. But in Matthew 18, Jesus is clear on what we do with conflict. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 is Jesus' command for us. Here's what this looks like to seek reconciliation. And what's amazing about these words of Jesus, about reconciliation, about resolving our conflicts, is that they're straightforward. I mean, it's really a straightforward process in Matthew 18. You go to the person alone. If they don't listen, you go back with a friend or two. And then if they don't listen to that, you bring the church, which usually means the church leadership, as best as I can tell. And then there's that whole Gentile and tax collector thing. We'll get there in a moment. But the point is it's straightforward. And it's also practical. People who practice this Matthew 18, Jesus' ethic on what you do with conflict, find it to be exceedingly practical. It really works. But not only is it straightforward, and not only is it practical, as I said a moment ago, it's a command. Jesus is not recommending this. He says to his followers, if your brother or sister sins against you, This is what you are to do. It's a command. But despite the fact that it's straightforward and it's practical and it's a command, it is so often ignored among the faithful. It's so often ignored. I think the reason it's ignored often is because it's hard. Matthew 18 is is hard. What's easier is uh, to write someone off to unfriend them on Facebook, or even better, block them, to simply cut them out of your life. And again, as I've said before in other contexts, if, if, um, if the sin committed against you falls into the category of what I call the four A's, abuse, addiction, adultery, or abandonment, I'm not saying Matthew 18 doesn't apply, but you'll need pastoral care to walk through that. So just hear that caveat this morning. But the reality is we often flee from Matthew 18. We do not follow these commands of Jesus because it's hard. I like how Bishop Tom Wright says this. He says, many Christians instead have taken the paper over the cracks option, believing that that's what forgiveness means, pretending that everything is all right, that the other person hasn't really done something wrong. That simply won't do. If someone else, another Christian, has been offensive, aggressive, bullying, dishonest, or immoral. Nothing whatever is gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that's been done. Forgiveness doesn't mean saying it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter and you're going to deal with it as Jesus has commanded us to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another again anyway. Will 
we deal with conflict in the church as Jesus has commanded. To encourage us to follow his commands, Jesus in these short six verses doesn't just lay out the process for how this works. What I mentioned a few moments ago, step one, step two, step three, that's verse 15, 16, and 17. But then in verses 18, 19, and 20, Jesus gives us a picture of what's at stake if we don't. He shows us what's at stake for Christians and for churches that do not practice his Matthew 18 model of conflict resolution. If we do not approach reconciliation this way, this is what is at stake. And so let's start there. What's at stake? What's at stake for us to follow Jesus' command to reconcile and the way we reconcile? Well, as we see in verses 18, 19, and 20, what's at stake is the entire mission of the church. The entire mission of the church is at stake here. Here's where we see it. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, he's quoting himself from two chapters earlier in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, he says to Simon, he says, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This binding and loosing language, friends, is nothing less than Jesus telling us that we have good news to proclaim to the world. And the good news is this. As we read in Romans 6 today, we live in a world that is full of bondage to sin. People, human beings in bondage to sin, bound. And Jesus has come to set us free. Jesus has come to loose those who are in bondage. And so he says to his church, whoever you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And, and you think, well, why does he saying me? Whatever I, I thought he was the one that loosed people in bondage. And he is. It's through his death and resurrection that loosing happens. But guess what, friends? We are the ones that have been given the message for the world. There's no plan B here. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one that looses the world, and we're the ones that have that message. From the day of Pentecost till this day, we are still the ones with the message of binding and loosing. And so as the world hears our message about what Jesus has done, the way they respond to our message will determine whether they stay bound or they get loosed from their sins, whether they receive that forgiveness offered in Jesus. Friends, it is on us to proclaim this message. And people aren't just listening to the words, they're looking at our lives, aren't they? Which leads to verse 19. Because we're the ones with this message about people who are in bondage being loosed, he then says, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And it's one of those strange verses that's hard to understand. You, you say, really? If just two of us agree, we're going to get whatever we want. But in reading it that way, we're misunderstanding the point of the verse. The key word here is the word agree. We've been given this message to proclaim to the world about the fact that people in bondage can be loosed 
freed from their sins. But to do so, we have to be in agreement. We have to be in unity. We need to be working together. The word agree in Greek is a wonderful word. I love it because you hear the word in Greek and you know exactly the deep meaning of this word. Agree in Greek is the word symphoneo. Symphoneo. To agree is to be in symphony with one another. It is to be in harmony with one another. It is to be in accord with one another. And isn't it disastrous when we listen to discord? Isn't it a horrible experience to listen to something that's not in harmony? When I was 11 years old, I was singing a duet in a large concert. Uh, My mother, as we were driving to the concert, asked me in the car, Paul, I think you should probably run through your part of the duets because you were a little bit wobbly in rehearsal. And I said, I got this. She said, no, seriously, I think you should run this. And I said, I got this. I get to the performance hall. The conductor says to me, Paul, do you want to run through that duet bit? Because, you know, I think you need to. And I said, I got this. And then I got out on stage with that young lady I was singing the duet with. And clearly it became apparent to everyone in the room in about three notes that I had not got this. And it was horrible and it went on forever. (laughs) It's horrible to listen to discord. I was so lost. And the best part of it is I was acting as if I could fake it. On my face, I looked like I was just angelically singing. The girl next to me is looking to me with a look of total horror on her face. And by God's grace, somebody captured that in a photo. And my mother has this photo and brings it out on a regular basis. And you know, the amazing thing about that look on her face, that look of horror at the discord I was creating is exactly the same look that is on the face of the world around us when they look and see Christians in disunity, in discord, out of harmony. It is the horror of looking at a place that is supposed to model reconciliation but does not. How is the world going to hear a message of reconciliation if we are not in symphoneo, if we're not seeking unity and harmony? And so, now that we're convinced this is what's at stake, what's at stake is the whole mission of the church. Well, then maybe we'll pay attention to the process Jesus gives us. And I say process, process is an important word I've learned since moving to Texas. Uh, One of the things that came out during the search process, um, it was a good search process, but there was one thing I kept doing that was really getting on the nerves of a particular member of the search team. And I kept saying, well, I kept pronouncing P-R-O-C-E-S-S in my native tongue, which is process. And I kept saying it again and again to the point that I was corrected by this member of the search committee, lovingly but firmly corrected. And I quickly learned how to speak American and said process. And I'll tell you, it got in there and I just couldn't shake it. So for the rest of my life now, it's process. I went back to Canada though. And I said this, I said process to somebody and they said, oh, you've learned to talk like an American. And I said, is that what it sounds like to (laughs) y'all? 
the three things that we see in this process, not the three steps in the process, but the three sort of core values underneath this process is that it's about sin, it's about sacrifice, and this process is about salvation, ultimately. Sin, sacrifice, and salvation. It's about sin. It's got to be about sin. Verse 15 says, if your brother or sister sins against you. Verse 15 does not say, if your brother or sister annoys you, bugs you, does things that just kind of drive you a bit nuts. That's not what this is about. We have that in, in our world in spades. People get annoyed with one another. Jesus' word on that, I think, would be just get over yourself. But this is, verse eight, chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, is about sin. The, the best definition of sin in the Bible is the idea of missing a mark. It's like there's a target, here's what God is requiring of you, and you miss the mark. And sometimes we miss the mark. We sin by neglect. Sometimes we sin by error. And sometimes we sin, we miss the mark because of rebellion. But the result is the same. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have broken our relationship with God. And we break our relationships with one another. Sin is the problem. And sin is what Matthew 18 is here to deal with. Those things that break our relationship with God and our neighbors. But it's also about sacrifice. It's not just about sin. It's about sacrifice. Verse 15 goes on to say, go and tell him his fault or her her fault between you and him or her alone. You go alone to speak to them about this sin. And again, I put that caveat there about abuse and the rest. If that's, if that's the category, then come speak to your priest. I still think this applies, but maybe we jump to step two or step three. But the point is, look at what happens in this process. It's sacrificial. And here's what I mean by sacrificial. This is hard. You know, to actually go individually to a person and confront them about the sin. And then if it doesn't work, to then go and grab one or two others and then talk to them about the sin and then if necessary get the church leadership in process. I mean, this is, this is hard. I mean, it's a lot easier just to gang up on someone. It's a lot easier to not show them any kind of respect, not any kind of dignity, and just gossip about them. You know, get all your friends on side, tell everyone about it except them. That's easy. This is hard. Going through this process is a sacrifice. It hurts someone who's hurt you. You've got to now go and kind of be vulnerable with them and share how they've hurt you? Yes. And that's why it's a sacrifice. It hurts. It's hard. It's not easy. The, um, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says these words about the same idea. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. I mean, that's where it gets hard. That's where this becomes a sacrifice. I don't want to deal with them in a spirit of gentleness. I want to tell them exactly what I think about them. Or frankly, just ignore them and never have to see them again. It's about sacrifice. All the way through. But ultimately, it's not just about sin and it's not just about sacrifice. It's about salvation. 
It's about saving that person, not condemning them. Some people want to use Matthew 18 as just a blunt object that you can sort of beat someone with. You know, I'm, I'm here to confront you and sort of get this off my chest. No, that's not what this is about. This is about saving someone. Verse 15 goes on to say, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The word literally means you've won your brother. What's been the whole goal of this has been to win back your brother or your sister. Right? You're seeking them, not seeking to condemn them. Brother, that word brother or sister, brother here stands at the beginning and end of this verse. If your brother sins against you and it ends with you have gained your brother, it's all about redeeming these relationships. I was in a funeral coach a number of years ago. Just the funeral director and I were coming back from the cemetery and uh, my phone rang and it was someone from the church and I had a conversation and the funeral director's driving and I guess somewhere a couple times in the conversation I said, I said okay, well, I'll talk to you later, brother, and, and, and I hung up and he said, oh, I didn't realize it was your brother. And I said, oh, it was a, it was a member of the church. And he goes, oh, are you, you're one of those brother, brother, brother churches. I said, yeah, I guess we are, because that's the gospel. We've become brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, the amazing thing about reconciliation between brothers and sisters is that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, which means if we believe the gospel, we're going to be with these people in eternity. So maybe it's wise that we start dealing with some of these issues now because we are stuck with them forever. It's about saving, not condemning. But even it's about saving even when they don't respond well. And this is the harsh truth of this. Look at verse 17. If he doesn't listen to you, your friends, or the church, then you are to treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. And you hear those words and go, man, that's harsh. And it is, but it's true. It's true because... If a person is consistently through this process refusing to repent, then they aren't really at this point living like a Christian. I'm not saying they've lost their salvation somehow, but they're sure not acting like a Christian. And so as best as I can tell, I'm going to treat them as they are acting. If they are consistently refusing to repent in the face of sin, then I will treat them as a pagan. I mean, one of the greatest criticisms that's often made of the church is, oh, we're all so holier than thou. When I was an atheist, I used to say that, oh, you Christians, it's all like, you know, you're all so perfect and you've got opinions about everybody's sin out there. I used to say those words until finally a friend of mine stood up to me and he said, that's not what I believe. He said, I'm a Christian, I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner. He said, do you know the difference though is? He said, I'm a repentant sinner. The call of the gospel is to repent when sins are acknowledged and identified in our lives that we repent, we make a U-turn, we ask forgiveness, we ask God the grace that we would turn around and live differently. That's the call of repentance. But until that happens in a person's life, that person is not acting as a repentant sinner. And therefore, as best as we can tell, having gone through this process with love seeking to save them, we are to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. But here's the gospel. It's not about tossing them to the wind. How does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? 
He welcomes them, and he speaks the good news over them, hoping, praying, asking them to be saved. And that's what we do as well. I mean, I love Eugene Peterson, how he says this in the message, in the, 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 the paraphrase of this text, he says these words. He says, if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start all over again from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. It's always about seeking to save. But it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Jesus, how can you ask us to live like this? It would be so much easier just to push these people aside. When I was an atheist, if you laid this out for me, I would have said, no way, forget it. But when I became a Christian, I realized that this conflict moment that Jesus is talking about, this reconciliation process, that in fact, it had already been lived out and modeled to me now in my own life by Jesus. Look at what comes just before this text. Just a few verses before Jesus gets to his reconciliation text in Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, suddenly as we look at this text about how to deal with reconciliation, we realize that Jesus has already modeled this whole story in the greatest reconciliation story in the cosmos, reconciling God and man. You see, just as Jesus has called us in this reconciliation text, it was all about sin. It was all about sacrifice. It was all about salvation. It was about sin. We broke the relationship with God. We broke it. We become enemies of God, as Scripture tells us. And yet Jesus, what does he do? Does he kick us to the curb? No. Jesus comes among us. And man, did it cost him. It cost him everything. Him redeeming us, him reconciling us was a sacrifice. Sacrificing his own body and blood for us. Because it was ultimately all about our salvation. How does God treat those who are his enemies, who have sinned against him? He goes after them at the highways and the byways. And he reaches out to save and redeem. I know we all know John 3.16 because we go to football games. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But do we know John 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. You see, as soon as Jesus is asking us to live this kind of reconciliation life, we realize that this is nothing less than what he's done for us already at a cosmic level. Jesus redeems us and then says, now that I've redeemed you, now that I've reconciled you, well, when your brother sins against you, this is what you do. Will we deal with the conflict in the church as Jesus has commanded that young man in our parish who got into a war with the rector's wife 
a disagreement over music in vacation Bible school. We never argue in the church about music, I know. Started bad-mouthing the rector's wife. It became gossip, became divisive. It became ugly. But in this story, I'm not the rector, I'm the young man. This was years ago. I was on staff as an intern at a church. I was barely a Christian. And it was a big conflict. And so the rector's wife came and she confronted me privately and I brushed it off. And then she came with another friend from the church and confronted me and I brushed them off again. And then a couple days later, a couple men, respected men, godly men, elders in our church, the equivalent of wardens, walked into my office and they sat down and confronted me and it finally dawned on me, oh, this is Matthew 18. And they were loving, but they were firm. And I heard and I repented and I made amends and she forgave me. What's at stake? Friends, I believe to this day, no joke, that the only reason I'm still in the church is because a group of Christians actually dealt with conflict there the way Jesus commanded them to. Will we deal with conflict in the church as Jesus has commanded? Because everything is at stake. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.